Well, good morning, JPBC. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hoon Kim, and I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Um, it's an incredible honor and privilege to be able to open the Word of God with you this Lord's Day, and I'm really, really thankful for this opportunity. Now, I'm sure that many of you might be wondering why we're in the middle of this random chapter in the middle of Hebrews. Um, Aside from the fact that this was a devotion I gave over two and a half years ago, I think it's fitting as Keith's been walking us through 1 Peter on Sunday mornings. Um, And so since we're only together for one day, I thought it'd be appropriate not to pull the car over too far. Since we've been learning about fear and reverence and acceptable worship to God, it seems appropriate to spend a Sunday looking at an example of this and, and why not use an example that Peter's going to reference later in First and Second Peter? And so, before we begin, I want to ask you to join me in prayer one more time. Father, again, we thank you and we praise you for this privilege of worship. We pray that you would open our ears and our, our eyes, that we may be able to comprehend the scriptures. And I pray, Father, that you help me to preach your word faithfully, guard my mind from distraction, my tongue from error, and my heart from pride. And may the name of Jesus be exalted during this time. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Perhaps the most popular theme for Christian nurseries is the story of Noah's Ark. Um, it's been the perennial favorites of many homes and churches across the years, and I think you know what I'm talking about. I mean, you kind of paint the walls baby blue to kind of look like the water, and then Uh, You can buy these stuffed animals and blankets with smiling cartoon animals, and the crib kind of looks like an ark, and so it all fits together nicely. I even remember when I was little, I remember playing with that classic ark set that had the giraffes and the elephants and all of those other animals that kids love. Um, And when you think about it, for a baby, that seems like a better nursery theme than most other biblical stories. I mean... It's either that or, you know, Abraham sacrificing Isaac or (laughs) David killing Goliath um, or any of those other popular Bible stories. And so happy cartoon animals and rainbows it is because naturally you want to create this nice environment for your baby to dream of the destruction of the entire human race. (laughs) There are few stories that have been more romanticized than the story of Noah's Ark. It's been turned into this cute nursery story where Noah is this kind old man who loves nature and and wants to preserve and keep the wildlife of earth. But it completely leaves out that terrifying scene of floodwaters rising and men and women and families attempting to board a boat whose door has already been shut beyond hope by God himself. In reality, the story of Noah's Ark is the second greatest instance of God's wrath that this world has ever known, one that is employed by the scriptures and Christians even now to remind ourselves that a greater future destruction is coming. And yet, at the same time, I think the case could be made that this is a story you'd want your baby to be surrounded by. In fact, I think you should argue that this is a story that you'd want your child and yourself, and every other Christian to to meditate on and to grow up in and have it permeate throughout their life. But not for the cute, romanticized reasons I mentioned before. Rather, if you're a parent, what is one of the things you value most when it comes to your child? 
It's their safety, right? It's their safety. And this isn't something that we just want for our children. It's something that we want in our own lives as well. That when it comes to what we desire for ourselves, we all desire safety. We see this play out in everyday life. It's the cause of some following their hearts and others following pastors, politicians, and doctors. It's the same desire in all. We desire safety for ourselves, safety for our children, safety for our family and friends. I wonder how personally you relate to that. As you go through different stages of life, you find yourself constantly worrying, constantly striving to find safety for you and for others. And there's nothing wrong with that desire. The Bible teaches us that this is a genuine human need. And at the same time, it teaches us where to find resolution for that need. In fact, the scriptures teach us over and over and over where to find resolution for this genuine need for safety. And that is exactly what this text teaches us. This text that is rich in its revelation of God's character and his relationship with his people teaches us where to find safety. So this morning, I want to study Hebrews 11.7 with you, and I think as we do, we will discover that the Bible teaches us that, true, that we are only truly safe when we have faith in God's word. True safety comes from faith in God's word. But before we look at the text itself, I thought it'd only be fair to contextualize this verse since we're kind of parachuting right in the middle. Hebrews chapter 11 is what many refer to as the Faith Hall of Fame. This chapter describes how many of the Old Testament heroes were saved by faith. And the list really serves a couple of functions that I want to point out. One of the purposes of this chapter is that it explains that the only way you can come to God is through the avenue of faith. So if you look up at verse 1, you'll see what faith is. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And verse 2, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that salvation's always been by faith. It doesn't matter if you were in the Old Testament or if you're in the New Testament, salvation's always been by faith. And to prove it, for the rest of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews is making his case, going through one by one, explaining how different heroes of the Old Testament were indeed saved by faith. But as he gets to the end of this list in chapter 12, verse 1, we see yet another function. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and so on and so forth. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that the Old Testament saints, we should look to them as examples of true faith. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the three, um, maybe we can call them stages or aspects of true faith as seen in the example of Noah that show us that we are only truly safe when we have faith in God's word. And the first stage is this. Faith listens. Faith listens to, or faith is provoked by, the word of God. Look down at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet seen. And immediately, that should cue your mind back to verse 1. Noah had a conviction of things not seen. 
And that conviction was based on the word of God. You know, every single instance of faith does not come from some encounter with clear thinking or listening to what seems natural or, or weighing the balance of facts and then, and then making a decision in faith. All true faith listens to and is provoked from and is brought about by the word of God. And Noah is a prime example. And to help you understand this, I think it'd be, a good, uh, it'd be good for us to visit the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Um, hopefully that will help us see what the world of Noah looked like. So you can flip in your Bibles or it's also in your bulletin. But Genesis 6 verse 5 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We're only four chapters in since the creation of mankind and the world has already plunged into such depravity, into such apostasy, into such an anti-God movement. From the rebellion of Adam and Eve, it seems that mankind has only spiraled into complete depravity. That by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, God sees all this evil. And Genesis 6, 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. You see the parallelism there? The, The heart of man had become so corrupt, so depraved that it grieved the heart of God. So much so that it says that the Lord regretted he had made man on the earth. And I want you to quickly notice that anthropomorphic language. We know that God is immutable and unchanging and doesn't regret or repent or change his mind. And yet the Bible is attributing this feeling of regret to God. And it's to emphasize the personal nature of sin. You see, sin is never abstract. It's always personally offensive to God. It was true then, and it's true now. Every time we sin, even our sins against someone else, every time you sin, it is ultimately against the holy God. It is towards him, and it grieves his heart. And so God, with resolution, decides to do something about the wickedness of man. They've willfully and intentionally rebelled against him. The entire race at war with God seeking to overthrow him. And so God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But God, in the midst of this wicked generation, shows grace. And that grace came to Noah. In Hebrews 11.7, it says, Noah being warned by God. There was divine communication from God, and specifically, it was a warning. This word of impending danger, this word of danger is coming, and if you want to be safe, listen to me. Hebrews 11 says that God warned Noah, that God told Noah that he was going to pour out his wrath on the earth and destroy every breathing creature, but that Noah could be safe. And when Noah heard it, he became convicted of it. And he was sure of it, and his faith was provoked. And our scripture reading from Genesis this morning gave us the details of this warning. 
God tells Noah that he's going to destroy the world in a flood and that everything will die, but that he'll establish his covenant with Noah and save Noah and his family and two animals of every kind, and God gives him the blueprints to build an ark. That was the warning. All of it revelation, all of it divine. Do you see that God's warning is gracious? That that encounter with the word of God that evokes, that brings about Noah's faith is gracious? I mean, why did Noah build an ark? Because it was prudent? Because he checked the weather forecast? Why? Why did Noah build an ark? Because God told him to. You know, there are some people who believe that it had never rained until the flood. And it's very possible it might not have rained a single drop up to this point. At the very least, I can say that there had definitely never been a cataclysmic worldwide flood before. And yet Noah built an ark. Not because he was prudent. Not because it was sound. Not because Noah was bored and handy and, you know, had a couple tools laying around. Noah built an ark because Noah heard from God. And that's really the basis of faith. Faith isn't often reasonable in appearance. Faith isn't good cost-benefit analysis. You know, I think I'm going to make a really good choice here. Faith isn't influenced by the times. Faith isn't so easily swayed by the words of men. Faith Faith listens to the word of God. You know, extra biblical literature, and if we can infer from 2 Peter and maybe see the from the wickedness of man even now. They, they talk about the oppression and assaults and even threats of violence that Noah had to face. He would have been considered a lunatic in his day. And in the midst of that, Noah was finding the trees and cutting them down. And it was Noah applying the pitch and building the ark and building the cages and gathering the food and guiding the animals. He stood against all opposition all mocking because he didn't hear them. He didn't hear the contemporary analysis of things. He didn't hear all the scoffing and mocking and respond to that. He didn't listen to the perceptions of the day. He didn't listen to the wisdom of his day. Noah listened to God because that's where his faith came from. And did you know, in the New Covenant, we too have received divine revelation from God. And just like for Noah, this revelation has a warning. It speaks of impending danger, of future judgment when God's wrath will be poured out on this earth again. But it tells us how we can have a right relationship with this God and how we can be safe from this danger. And that revelation is sitting right in your lap. We believe that the Bible is the full revelation of God that's breathed out by God and profitable for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that we as Christians might be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything that you need to live a life that is rightly related to God, everything that you need to, in order to harness everything in your life and live a wise and safe life directed towards this purpose of enjoying and knowing and glorifying God forever is in this book. Everything that you need for life and godliness is in the Bible. That is a wonderful comforting truth. God has not left us alone for for us to have to guess who he is and what's pleasing to him and how we can rightly be related to him. He's given us his very word so that we can know. And not only so, but he's also given us his very own spirit 
to illuminate that word to our hearts. So that as we delight in God's word and we meditate on its truths day and night, as the word of God is constantly running through our minds and we're wrestling with it, we're turning it over in our heads, we're learning about God, learning about future promises and warning, we're preaching it to ourselves and we're praying over it, saying, God, what does this mean? God, reveal me to me your will. God, how do I live in light of this? God, help me to hope in your promises. God, remind me of who you, who you are. God, help me to love you more. And as we're applying scripture to our hearts and our lives, and as we saturate our minds with God's word, the spirit causes us to become consumed with who God is and begins to shape the way that we think and feel and so act. Faith finds its source in the word of God. That's where it sprouts from. And you will find faith by responding to and recognizing that who you are ultimately as a Christian finds its source not in the will of man, but in the will of God. Faith comes entirely from God's promise. And in the case of Noah, this unseen flood that he'd been warned about of global destruction provoked him that if he wanted to be safe, he needed to live by faith. His faith listened to the word of God. So faith listens. The second stage we see from this text is faith obeys. Faith obeys. Look again at Hebrews 11.7. By faith... Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah built a boat. And that makes complete sense, right? Noah heard a warning from God. Noah wanted his his family to be safe. Noah put two and two together, and he did something about it. The only thing more foolish than to reject God's warning would be to believe it and then do nothing about it. The point is that faith obeys. Noah built an ark. We, we heard from our scripture reading just how insane this task was. Noah was told exactly how to build. He was only allowed to use one type of wood. The boat was to be one and a half football fields long, a, a quarter of a football field wide, and four stories high. The inside volume would have been 1.5 million cubic feet, and that's incredible. Imagine the the time and effort. But we know that Noah submitted to God's word, and he did it all because faith, by its very nature, is practical. As crazy and impossible as God's instructions might have sounded, he did every single part of it, and he did exactly what God told him to do. That's what Genesis 6.22 says. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah understood that faith faith obeys, and he knew that it would keep him and his household safe. But there's another element to Noah's obedience, and that was preaching. You know, both the writer of Hebrews and the apostle Peter connect Noah's obedience with his preaching. And we'll talk about this more in a bit, but I think his preaching sounded like this. I don't think Noah was preparing sermons every week. I think Noah was furiously building a boat as fast as he could to save his family. And I'm sure that when the mockers and the scoffers came, he said, God is going to flood this world. He is a righteous God, and he he will judge this world, and 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 you will die unless you get on this boat. 
And I am sure that 1.5 million cubic feet could have held thousands of those mockers and thousands of those scoffers. And I am sure that when he built that door, that door was open for, for years until the flood came. But I am sure that his sermon sounded like work and work and practical obedience and sawing and caring for the animals and getting food supplies ready and knowing and believing that that day was coming and he had a work to do from God. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And he did it with a particular attitude. Do you see it in Hebrews 11? In reverent fear. If you have a high view of God's word, inevitably, inescapably, you will also have a high view of the God of the word. And so the attitude of his obedience is summed up in this phrase, in reverent fear. Noah feared the Lord. And if we as Christians are to look at Noah as an example, well, we've got to ask the question, what does it mean to fear God? Over and over and over, the Bible uses the word fear, to describe the relationship that he wants with his people. The kind of relationship that God wants with you and with me is one of fear. And so we have to know what it is. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of an uncomfortable word. And so I think we have this tendency to immediately substitute it with other words like reverence or or honor, and then we just kind of move on. And I think that those can be definitely very helpful synonyms. But before using them, I think it's necessary to define this word a bit more. For instance, if we look at Hebrews 11.7, if we immediately substitute the word fear with the word reverence, well, this verse wouldn't really make sense, would it? By faith, Noah, in reverent reverence, there's a clear distinction between fear and reverence. The writer of Hebrews meant fear. So what does it mean that Noah feared God? I think it's just helpful to ask this question. What is fear at its core? It is one of the most powerful, emotional experiences that humans can have. My, my youth pastor used to have a really provocative way of explaining it like this. Think of the time that you were most afraid in your entire life. For me, it was a, a time in college. Some friends and I, we decided to take a trip to uh, see Niagara Falls and spend a couple days in Toronto. I was maybe 19, 20 years old, and like the responsible college students we were, we decided to go instead of studying for our upcoming exams. Well, on the drive back, we were going about 70 on a highway somewhere in Maryland, and it started to rain. And uh, we came up on this bend in the road, and all of a sudden, we hit this patch of water and just began hydroplaning. My, my friend, he lost complete control of the wheel. We made the sharp right and slammed into the guardrails. We, the airbags failed to deploy for whatever reason, and we made this 360 spin in the middle of the interstate and landed up on the side of the road. Not, not, a, not a second later, a truck came careening down the highway, just barely missing the car. In those five or six seconds, I am the most afraid I have ever been in my entire life. And there is nothing in the world that mattered to me in that moment except the object of my fear. Nothing else mattered. Thoughts of anything else, any other concerns, anxieties, worries, fears, hopes, dreams, everything is driven out and I am consumed by this one object. 
I didn't care about the test I was going to have to take the next day. I didn't care about my, if I was going to graduate. I didn't care about my internship and what my career was going to look like and if I would eventually have the family and life that I'd always dreamed of. I didn't care about any of those things. That's what fear does. And so think about the time that you were most afraid in your life. Think of that moment. I can guarantee this, that in that moment, the object of your fear consumed you. It consumed you and controlled every thought in your mind, didn't it? It pushed everything else out of your mind, your priorities and thoughts and imaginations and affections. Every part of you was just focused on the object of your fear. That thing gripped you and compelled you, and you acted in response to it. If you cared about something, it's because the fear, the object of your fear, directed your thoughts and your actions towards that something. That's the nature of fear. It's an all-consuming reality. And this is what it is to fear God. It is to see God as he is in his infinite glory, majesty, power, righteousness, holiness, purity, mercy, patience, compassion, and to be in awe such that you are consumed by him, such that everything in your life is controlled and compelled and directed by the object of your fear, the living God himself. You know, we're all compelled by something. And reverent fear is just a way of summing up a right relationship with God. It's to be so consumed and in awe of who God is that he controls and compels every facet of your life. Because when you fear God, you have such a great, clear, glorious, transcendent view of God that is so overwhelming, it drives out sin. It drives out anxiety. It drives out pride. It drives out selfishness. And in view of this consuming, awe-inspiring God who consumes you with awe and wonder, you live a life of meaning and joy and obedience that happens when you see God as he really is. And this is the attitude of Noah. Listen, God gave Noah, it was an incredible warning and, and honestly a ridiculous command. But Noah didn't argue. He feared God and built an ark. Noah didn't grumble. He feared God and built an ark. Noah didn't ignore. He feared God and built an ark. Noah didn't procrastinate or become distracted. He feared God and built an ark. He was so consumed and gripped by the glory of God that when God commanded him, as difficult as it was, it compelled him to obey. So I think it would do us well to maybe take a moment and reflect. When you're confronted with a command from God that makes you think, what in the world? You can't be serious. What do you do with it? When you're confronted with a command that just seems the most wild, outrageous, absurd, irrational, the most incomprehensible, upside-down thing that you could possibly imagine, What do you do with it? When you're confronted with a command that you just don't want to do, what do you do with that? What do you do with God's commands? When he speaks into your life and speaks about your attitude, when he speaks about the words that you say, when he speaks about the thoughts that you think and the actions that you do, 
when, when, he, when he speaks about the goals that you have, when he calls you to do something or calls you not to do something. When Jesus Christ commands you, what do you do with it? True safety is not found in your own wisdom. It's not found in what seems best to you. It's not found in what the world tells you. True safety is found in obedient faith to Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't as if this was a walk in the park for Noah. As if building an ark isn't hard enough, I'm sure we could imagine maybe, you know, some of the opposition that Noah might have faced. And I don't think that it'd be all too different from what we'd hear in the world today. In fact, I think it was probably worse. As Noah kept hammering and hammering and warning and telling them that a flood was coming, and they said, what's a flood? What are you doing? And they made Noah jokes, and they laughed at Noah, and they mocked his wife, and they mocked his family, and they said, what a fool. What a small-minded person. What a bigot Noah is. He doesn't give us the freedom to be who we are. Look at Noah being all righteous and religious. What a raving lunatic. He's all alone, just him and his family building a big, dumb boat. Because for one day, and another day, and another day, they saw Noah build. And for one year, and another year, and then another, they saw Noah and his sons build. And for years and years, they were, they, they were making fun of Noah, and their grandparents were making fun of Noah, their parents were making fun of Noah, because their hard hearts mocked the word of God. But Noah obeyed, and he built, and built, and built. And thus Hebrews 11 says, Noah, listen to this, Noah saved his household. And so just as God calls Noah to be faithful to his commands, even if it seems wild to him, so God calls new covenant believers to be faithful to their, their, their covenant to love and obey their God. Now, I think it's worth asking this question. Well, we belong to the new covenant. That's where we're at. If we have faith in Jesus Christ, we belong to the new covenant. So God's not going to ask us to do something crazy like what he asked Noah, right? God's not going to ask us to pick up a hammer. And this is where we have to pause and remember that Jesus himself says, Jesus himself, the one who dies in our place, who resurrects from the dead, who offers us forgiveness. He, he says, he, he looks us in the eyes and he says, if, if anyone, sorry, if anyone will come after me, you want to be a member of the new covenant? He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the call of the new covenant. In other words, in the new covenant, God will not call you to pick up a hammer. He calls you to pick up a cross. He calls you to die to yourself. All of your sinful desires, some of the desires that come as natural to you as breathing. He, he calls you to not deny what might seem natural, intuitive, logical. Deny the wisdom of what everyone else is doing and submit to the word of God. He calls you to bring your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He calls you to bring your goals, to bring your family, to bring everything that you are and everything that you hope to be before him to crucify it and to tell him, command me, Lord, I'm yours. This is the call of the new covenant. Even if it sounds crazy and dangerous, even if Jesus' words to you seem just out of this world, 
The call of the new covenant is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And what God wants us to learn from this example of Noah is that when you obey him, you'll find that safety is found in obedient faith to Jesus Christ. If you want to be safe, if you want to be happy, if you want peace and joy, the place you find those things is in obedient faith to Jesus Christ. So we saw faith listens, faith obeys, third and finally, faith results. Hebrews 11.7 says, By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So there's two things happening here in faith's results. First, by faith, he condemned the world. I mentioned earlier that condemnation was in the building of the ark. That construction project was an act of condemnation. 2 Peter 2 says Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he told these people the reason he was building a boat was that God's judgment was coming, and the only way they could be saved was to turn from their unrighteousness, to turn from their sin, and experience God's grace and get inside that boat, because anyone outside the boat would perish. And so once the rain started, the judgment was final, and Noah was safe and vindicated. You see, Noah became an important instrument in God's unfolding plan. That was the result. By his faith, he demonstrated that God's justice is good. That God would not let sin go unpunished, and yet at the same time, he would not let the righteous perish with the wicked. And so Noah condemned the world. Second, Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. An heir is someone who receives something that is generationally passed down. And notice he inherits it. It didn't belong to him before. It came from outside of him. And and to see this, there's a small but significant detail that I skipped in Genesis 6 in verses 8 and 9. And we'll go there now. Genesis 6, 8 through 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so we should ask, why? Is it because Noah had lived up to a higher standard? Is it because Noah was just better than everyone else? Is it because God looked at Noah and he was thinking, you know, Noah's trying his best? No. It's because God, Noah found favor. The word there is grace in the eyes of Yahweh. I mean, Noah was a sinner like all the rest. Noah, Noah was depraved like all the rest. His story culminates with him getting drunk and laying naked in his shame. So then why did Noah encounter God's grace? What was so special about Noah? The answer is absolutely nothing. There was nothing in Noah that caused God to say, you know, Noah's worth keeping. Noah's worth preserving. Noah's worth saving. Instead, it's that God was so worthy to keep his own word and remember his promise to Adam and Eve that he would bring about a redeemer, a deliverer, someone to crush the head of the serpent and rescue the sons of men that he would not let his promise fail. He would not let his word fall. In other words, The basis upon which Noah received grace is nothing that he has done, nothing about him at all. The basis upon which Noah is declared righteous and blameless is who God is 
and the covenant he made to save his people. The only thing Noah can do is go before God empty-handed, clinging to nothing of his own goodness or who he is or what he can do, but, but casting himself solely on God and his mercies and the promises that he made. And so God revealed himself to Noah. He showed Noah unmerited favor, gave Noah grace so that Noah's righteousness and his obedience was the result of God's grace and not the other way around. I mean... Even in the story, notice the chronology. Noah first finds grace in the eyes of God and is declared righteous, and then Noah builds the ark. And the same principle is at work today. If you're a Christian, God has sovereignly and completely revealed himself to us and shown us his grace. Just as God said he would be bruised in order to fulfill his covenant to to Eve, Uh, that that through the offspring of Eve, uh, the head of the serpent would be crushed. So God entered into this world, and entering in as a man, he himself was bruised. He himself was slaughtered, and in his slaughter, he bore the flood of judgment that we deserve for our sins. On the cross, he turns over God's cup and says, it is finished. All the sins of my people paid in full, taken away. And he resurrected from the dead. And now God sends his spirit into the world to unite us to his son. So that now that we're in Jesus Christ, God sees us as righteous and treats us as if we had lived Jesus' perfect life. He counts the perfect righteousness of Jesus as as though it belongs to the believer and on that basis. Not on the basis of anything in that person, but on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He counts that person righteous, accepted, and justified, and says, come, come into my presence, and all of my blessings, and favor, and safety. It's always been that way. If you want to be blameless, if you want to be an heir of righteousness, it starts by receiving God's gift of grace, and there is nothing you can do to earn it. There is nothing you can do to deserve it. It is solely on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is something only Noah could hope for. And something that we now have. But the principle is still the same. All you can do is come before God with empty hands and take him by faith as Noah did. Noah knew he would answer to God. And Noah knew his righteousness was not his own. But it was a gift on the basis of faith, which was a gift from God. And so God told Noah and his family to enter the ark you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. And so they entered the boat, and God shut the door, and the rain fell, and the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And I think we can maybe use a little bit of uh, sanctified speculation here to maybe try to grasp how truly terrifying this really was. I mean, I'm sure we've heard something like this before. The The rain starts coming down at the beginning of those 40 days, and the ground bursts forth with water. And eventually the water starts to pool and gather, and I bet it took time for those mockers and scoffers and God-haters to start to feel nervous. Because I, I can definitely see their hard hearts mocking the water. But after one day, and then another day, the water started to rise, and the people had to do something or they and their families would be drowned. And so they do what people do when waters begin to rise. They get to higher ground. 
Thousands of people climbing hills and mountains or whatever else, trying to get to higher ground like refugees from the wrath of God pouring down as water out of the sky. They sought higher ground. Some of them undoubtedly starting to consider the ark and, you know, even maybe waiting in the water to get there. But then the higher ground begins to disappear. Those who can swim would seek to reach the ark and swim, I'm sure they did, with all of their strength and with all of their might to get inside that boat that they had been invited inside for years. The the boat that they had scorned and mocked, they wanted to get inside with the man who had invited them in. They realized that maybe, just maybe, Noah understood something they didn't. And now the higher ground is disappearing and people are starting to get swept away by the flood. Men and women and children, the entire population as well as all of the animals. And I'm sure that those who are able seek to find the ark and they make it to that big wooden boat and they pound on the side and weep because the door had been shut by God and they could no longer get in. And I'm sure you could hear their screams. And I'm sure that it was terrifying. But it wasn't Noah who shut the door. Genesis seven sixteen says that God sealed it shut. God himself shut the door. And they couldn't get in. And they drowned in their sin. And they faced the eternal wrath of God. Noah condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What are you going to do? You know, God promised that he's going to destroy this world in its entirety and make a new one for all of his people. But he won't do it by water. He'll do it by fire, by terrible fire. That's what Peter said, and he compared it to the disaster that Noah faced, except on a much greater eschatological scale. And Jesus said it too. That was our New Testament reading. Jesus himself said that he would come back again. Last time it was to save, this time it will be to judge. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when God entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. But God has provided an ark for us a vehicle of safety, provision to be rescued from the wrath to come. And that is in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith in this Jesus is the only place you will be able to find safety to shield yourself from the wrath of God. Faith listens to God's warning. Some of you need to listen to the warning of God today. But for those of you who have, that same faith then then acts in obedience to God's word. For Noah, he built an ark. For us, we we follow Christ by faith. And just as Noah warned his world that God's righteous judgment was coming and became an heir of righteousness, so you also have a responsibility to warn this world. I mean, think of all of the faces that Noah must have seen over the course of the boat's destruction. People that he knew would be killed and drowned unless they got on the boat. Are you compelled to share that reality of God's judgment with this condemned world? Because that boat could have held many sinners, but not even close to as many sinners that can be held by Jesus Christ, the greater ark, the vehicle of salvation. And if you feel discouraged because maybe you look around and it seems hard, 
or dangerous or all for nothing. I mean, that happens to me more than I'd like. I encourage you to look at the example of Noah. This man who, by faith, worked and preached for years in one of the most unrighteous, wicked, evil epics of human history. And for all of those years, every single person he preached to scoffed at and rejected his message. So that when Judgment Day finally came, only him and his family were safe. And yet he worked and preached day after day until that final day when God shut the door. He had faith in God's word. He feared God over man. And we find that he was safe because of it. So share the good news of God's ark. Because this generation is just as perverse and evil and unrighteous as we were before we met God's grace and found a savior. Plead with them. Come into the ark. Come in and be safe. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have been gracious to reveal yourself and your will for our lives. And we thank you for what Christ has done for us on the cross. We pray that your spirit would cause us to respond in faith, that we would be obedient to your son, that we would love him and be consumed by him and live in reverent fear of you. We pray that as we continue to meditate on the example of Noah and the truths we see in this text, that we would be compelled to share Christ with others as we hope in your promise of safety. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.